Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week, Pastor Schlund had for you guys a quiz, and this isn't quite that hard even, but I just have one single question for you. What comes to mind first when you think of the day of Pentecost? In 2010, there were two professors, Daniel Simons from the University of Illinois and Chris Chabry from Harvard, and they conducted an experiment. They gathered hundreds of people across different demographics and age ranges, and they had them watch a short one-minute video. And they gave them a, a task, a relatively simple one. See, this video was of two teams of three passing a basketball back and forth between one another. And the task was that they had to count the number of passes that one particular team made in that video. And so when the video ended, they asked the participants, and they found that over 90% of those who watched the video could give the correct answer 15. It wasn't a very hard task. But then they asked a second question. Did you see the gorilla? See, about 15 seconds into the video, a man dressed in a gorilla outfit came out, jumped around, walked in between both sets of teams, and then left after about 30 seconds. And of that 90% who could get the correct number of passes, the vast majority of them had not only no idea there had been a gorilla in the video, but didn't even believe it when they were told they had to be shown again. They proved a human trait, a phenomenon of the human brain called inattentional blindness. That when we as humans are so accustomed to what we should be expecting or know to expect in a particular situation, our brains can become so narrowly focused that we can miss even the most extraordinary, noteworthy, or just downright weird things that are going on around us. And so this weekend, today, we celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, and it's a story that's not unfamiliar to us, and yet I think at times, at least maybe for some of us, we can have a little inattentional blindness to what the Holy Spirit did that day. For many of you, when I ask you to picture that day of Pentecost, what maybe first came into your mind is what we read at the start of our second reading, that the disciples are all gathered in a room of one accord, all together, and a rushing sound like a mighty wind comes, and above their heads appear tongues of fire. And they begin to speak, and as men gather who heard this rushing wind sound, they are shocked because when the disciples speak, these Galileans, they hear them in their own native tongue. And these men are from every nation and land one could think of in that day. And some even mock the disciples, saying, well, they must be drunk on some new sort of wine. And so Peter stands up, and he addresses the crowd and says, no, it's only 9 a.m. We haven't had any wine yet. And then quotes from the prophet Joel, from Joel chapter 2, saying to them, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And at the end of Joel, the end of that quotation, that's usually when our remembrance of Pentecost ends. In fact, it's ordinarily where the reading for Pentecost ends. And it can be where we limit, get so narrowly focused on what happened that day, 
and have some inattention to what God was truly doing. See, after Peter quotes Joel, Peter is not done. The Holy Spirit is not done on that day of Pentecost, and quite intentionally, at least for this day, our reading does not end there either. Rather, we hear Peter continue on by saying, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, this Jesus you crucified and killed. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then even continuing on past our, where our ellipses is in the reading, Brothers, it is with confidence I say to you that David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah. This Jesus God raised up, and we are all witnesses. And we have received from the Father the very thing he promised, the Holy Spirit. And he has poured this out upon us. That is what you are witnessing. Let all the house of Israel, let all people therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Those are the actual words of Peter's sermon that day. Those are the words that the Holy Spirit gives to the apostles to share with the men of Jerusalem that day. That this Jesus is Lord. This Jesus is Christ. And you crucified him. And boy, do we have some news for you. He is risen. When they heard these words, those men in Jerusalem, they were clearly not good Lutherans because there was no Easter acclamation response. They didn't respond with, well, he's risen indeed. Hallelujah. No, when they heard the proclamation of Christ and him crucified, those men in Jerusalem stood there realizing that in their sin, they had not only demanded, but quite effectively brought about the death of God's only son, God's Messiah, God himself. And we read, starting in Acts chapter 2 at verse 37, the beginning of what I believe is the greatest miracle of Pentecost. We read that those men of Jerusalem who heard this, they were cut to the heart in the Greek, that word cut is literally pierced or stabbed. That they stood there in the realization, the full realization of what their sin meant, what outcome it dictated. And they're humbled in the reality that the law of God, when it confronts a sinner, well, it condemns the sinner. It crushes the sinner. It kills the sinner. In fact, one could even say that as those who realize their sin in that moment, there could be no more terrifying, crushing, chilling, frightening words than to hear, this Jesus you killed, he's back. And then we get their response to Peter. What shall we do? What can we even do? And here is where I believe the most beautiful part of Pentecost truly lies. For Peter's response is, well, you should have thought about that two months ago. No, his response is not that. Nor is it, well, it's a little late now that you killed him. <laughs> Rather, Peter says to those men of Jerusalem, you need to repent. 
Be baptized every single one of you. Not so that maybe God might give it to you a little easier, what you have coming, but for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit you're bearing witness to now. You who killed Jesus will receive that. For he is Christ. He is Lord. You crucified him. He is risen. And he comes for those who killed him. Comes not in vindictive wrath, though. But he comes to you who killed him with a promise. A promise for you and for your children. For those who are far off. For everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That right there is what I believe to be the true beauty of what happened at Pentecost. That it's not just about tongues of fire appearing over 12 guys' heads in Israel, but the fact that through their words, through their words, the Holy Spirit would work to bring to those who heard, bring to the broken, the guilty, the sinner, the child, the hurting, the one far off, the one who's hearing it for the first time and maybe the one who's heard it their entire life. The Holy Spirit would work through their words to bring to all whom the Lord God calls to himself the promise, the gift, the reception of what God came to bring to them. I said at the beginning of this sermon that we as humans, when we know what to expect, can sometimes miss the extraordinary the spectacular. And how true does that become for us, not just in our remembrance of Pentecost, but in terms about how we think the Holy Spirit works, what the Holy Spirit does in us, what the Holy Spirit does for us, what the Holy Spirit can even do through us. We get accustomed to words and phrases like, remember your baptism." Or the fact that we can confess our sins before God and not immediately get wiped off the face of the earth. We can be accustomed to the truly extraordinary and spectacular gifts that he brings to us, not just on this Feast of Pentecost, but each and every day. Like the joy in being able to to hear those words that you who were sinful You for whom the Lord our God was pierced because of your transgressions, your sins are forgiven. That just as it was for those men of Jerusalem that day, perhaps even at times we become accustomed to that proclamation and we forget that just as it was for them, the Holy Spirit cuts us to the heart with that reality that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us and it cuts us to the heart and even as, as Paul would put it, kills us. He writes in Romans chapter 6 that, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That we are united with him in a death like his. That we were crucified with him so that our sinful self may be brought to nothing. We who so easily mirror the attitude of those all the way back in Genesis chapter 11, who would love to make ourselves like the gods, 
in their words, we are reminded that the gift of the Holy Spirit means that we ourselves of our own merit are brought to nothing. We are actually killed by what God does. But as Paul reminds that Roman church, this death is different in that this death brings to you life. For interspersed in those verses in Romans 6, Paul writes, For just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That though we are killed to sin, we are no longer enslaved to sin. We are set free from sin so that you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Just as it was for those men in Jerusalem that day, the law of God cuts us right at the heart, convicts us, and even of our own merit, condemns us for our many sins. And yet we are reminded on this day of Pentecost, the gift of the Holy Spirit is not one that brings condemnation, but one that brings to us life. That the proclamation of he is Christ, he is Lord, you crucified him and he is risen does not mean your destruction, but your own promise of a resurrection, your reconciliation back to the God that you and I so easily, so quickly, so mightily sin against. That as Luther would put in his small catechism, that each and every one of us have been called by the Holy Spirit, by the gospel, and enlightened, given his tremendous gifts, sanctified and kept in the true faith, called, gathered, enlightened, and sanctified, just like the whole church on earth. And that daily and richly, through the gift of faith, through the work of Christ, our sins are forgiven. And so we sit here on this Pentecost day, reminded of just how special and extraordinary that gift is. Not the ability of some disciples to speak and and to be heard in a native language, but the gift of that promise, a promise that is for you, it's for your children, for those who are far off and for all whom God would call to himself. And we're reminded that we can, in the confidence of the Holy Spirit, hear these words. That this Jesus, this Jesus is Christ, this Jesus is Lord, you crucified him, and this Jesus is risen. And in that Holy Spirit respond, well, he is risen indeed, and I'm connected to him. Alleluia. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.